So we're, we're in this uh, series of sermons called The Stewardship of Life. I dealt with John 15 a few weeks ago. I'm going to deal with it again this week. In John 15, there are three people involved. There's the vine dresser who's the father. There's the vine represented by Christ. And there are the branches who are the believers, the church. And the issue in John 15 is the significance of bearing fruit in the name of the Father. That all of life has significance because we are indeed made in the image of God and called into fellowship with Him. Now, this past December, one of the most outstanding teachers of the church of, of our generation died, R.C. Sproul. And R.C. Sproul had a, a, a column he wrote every month for years entitled, Right Now Counts Forever. And it kind of morphed into Coram Deo, or seeking the face of God, or before the face of God. But in 1977, as a very much younger man, he died at age 78 last December, uh, as a very much a younger man, 1977, he wrote an article that was entitled, Right Now Counts Forever. And he talked about that in that particular context of 1977, that some of you have no idea what was going on then. Some of you have forgotten, but let me refresh your memory. He says in 1977, we live in the Pepsi generation. He says the Pepsi generation has a theme, live life with gusto, but live it automatically. He says we also in 1977 had just experienced a, an epic TV miniseries called Roots, which is all about finding your identity and, and your heritage and your historical lineage. And he said and a, a new movie has just been introduced. It's a low-budget movie that's making a significant impact. And this low-budget movie that's making a great impact is a throwback to the thrilling days of yesteryear when heroes were fashionable. And this low-grade or low-impact movie was the movie what? Rocky. Rocky. Which won the Academy Award for Best Picture. And R.C. said it was a great movie because it says man is significant. Rocky Balboa. It was a good movie. And then he wrote this. If I am a cosmic accident springing from the dust and destined for more dust, then I am nothing. <clears throat> I'm a joke. I'm a toad told by an idiot, quoting Shakespeare. But if my ultimate roots are grounded in eternity and my destiny is anchored in the same eternity, then I know something of who I am. I know that I am a creature of eternal significance. If that is so, then my life counts. What I do counts forever. Now the now, present context, really does mean something. And I've said on this sermon series that stewardship is, is the embrace of a God-given trust that's done with joy and sobriety. Joy because I'm significant and I'm made in the image of God and He's called me into fellowship with Himself and I, I've seen the glory of sins forgiven through the cross. But, but sobriety because it's a trust. It's a responsibility. In 1 Corinthians, the book, the book of 1 Corinthians is written to a very dysfunctional church. It's written to a church that was filled with people that were glorying in different teachers and not glorying in Christ and filled with people that were at odds with each other where there's open disputations. It was a church that was uh, tolerating a sexual depravity that even the pagan world didn't 
embrace or allow. It's a church where people were taking each other to court and suing each other over trivial matters. Uh, and so, so Paul is addressing these issues, and he's addressing this, these plethora of issues. And he comes to a little statement in 1 Corinthians 6. He's talking about sexual purity, but he says this. He says, do you not know, verse 19, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives within you? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. And the little phrase, you are not your own. You belong to God. If, if you are a follower of Christ, you belong to God. You are not your own. And so, so Paul's whole emphasis in, in trying to bring order out of this discordant mass is to say, realize that you belong to God. You, you have his seal of imprint upon you. You have received the Holy Spirit. You are not your own. You lose to something bigger than yourself. The book of 1 Peter is written to the churches in Asia Minor and is talk, preparing them for times of persecution and hardship. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, it says, verse 4, that, that, that you've come to Christ, a living stone, rejected by men, in the sight of God, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And you yourselves as living stones, see, are being built into a temple of worship in God in the Holy Spirit. It says, Christ is a stumbling block to people who don't know him. But verse 9, but you are a chosen people a royal priesthood and a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You belong to God. It says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So again, to prepare them for this time of, of persecution and hardship, he says, listen, you as living stones are being built into a temple you're a chosen priesthood, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. So, so it's this whole concept of understanding stewardship with joyful sobriety. And then I come to John 15 that we covered a few weeks ago. John 15 is all about abiding in Christ. And the Lord says these really startling words. He says, verse 2, every branch... Of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown in the fire and burned. Verse 8, this is my Father, to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, even I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And then he says verse 11, which to me is, is such a provocative verse and it seems really out of place because he's talking about, about, about being pruned. He's talking about if you don't bear fruit, he takes you away. He talks about the importance of abiding. But then he says this. These things I have spoken to you that my joy, my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Wow. So, so, so I, I walk away from this and I, I say that, that a life of stewardship 
as a joyful responsibility that is filled with joy. If you're a Christian this morning, you've trusted Christ, let me tell you this. Be joyful. Be joyful. Joy is not an option. Joy is to be endemic to the Christian faith. Isaiah 61, verse 3, just a couple of verses, uh, talks about the joy that comes. It says, I, he says, I, I will grant them who mourn in Zion and give them the, a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the, the oil of gladness <clears throat> instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called, called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord that he may be glorified, the oil of gladness. And I ask you, how's your joy? How, how's your joy? In Psalm 30, David is writing this psalm. He's talking about, uh, about his experience with the Lord, and he says with, with incredible insight, he says, you know, he says, as for me, he says, in my prosperity, I said to those around me and to myself, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you make my mountain stand strong. You hid your face and I was dismayed. That's what David said, when I felt self-sufficient, had it all together, I was healthy, things were going good, and I said, I, I mean, I, I, am, I am there. I will never be moved. He says, but God, you hid your face for, for one minute, and I was dismayed. And then he closes this psalm by saying this, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I will give you thanks forever and ever. How's your joy? As a believer, how's your joy? Joy is a, is a matter of perspective and looking. In the book of Deuteronomy, it says basically that, that God threatens judgment upon those who aren't happy. Get happy. Deuteronomy 28 talks about the, the people. He says, I bless them. He says, but, verse 37, but because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all your things. See, God, God it's, it's, a, it's a weird phenomenon. God blesses his people with, with prosperity and joy and things and comfort. And in our prosperity and joy and comfort, we take our eyes off God and we forget him. And then we go down the drain. So, so really, how's your joy? How's your worship? How, how's it going with you? Jesus says, I, I say these things to you that your joy may be full. First John says, I write these things to you that your joy may be full. There's a wonderful little book called Happiness. It's my favorite book of the last year by a guy named Randy Alcorn. He wrote the book on heaven. He writes good stuff. Now, I'm just going to read a couple of statements from this book on happiness. Every, every page is filled with things that are quotable because he just, for four, almost four pages, he just quotes people. Listen to this. This is from, uh, this is his thesis. He said, rest assured, this book is not about pasting on a false, silly smile in the midst of heartache. We have heartache. It's about discovering a reasonable, attainable, delightful happiness in Christ that transcends difficult circumstances. This vision is realistic because it's built on God's all-encompassing sovereignty and love and goodness and grace and gladness and redemptive purposes in our lives. Until Jesus comes again 
and cures us in this world, our happiness will be punctuated by times of great sorrow. But that doesn't mean we can't be predominantly happy in Christ. Being happy as the norm rather than the exception is not wishful thinking. It's based on solid facts. God secured our eternal happiness through a cross and an empty tomb. He is with us and at this moment tells us to be happy. Later in the book, he quotes a guy named George Whitfield, who was a famous evangelist who died in about 1770. He said, is it the end of religion to make men happy? And, and is it not everyone's privilege to be happy as he can be in Christ? Does Jesus want your heart only for the same end as the devil does to make you miserable? No, he only wants you to believe on him that you might be saved. This is all the dear Savior desires to make you happy in him, that you may leave your sins and sit down eternally with him, close quote. He desires for, our, for us to rejoice. And then a guy named John Broadus, who was a professor at Southern Seminary in the 1850s and 60s and 70s, from Virginia, he said, the pastor may lawfully appeal to our desire for happiness and his negative counterpart, the dread of unhappiness. Those philosophers who insist that we ought always to do the right thing simply and only because it is right are not philosophers at all, for they're either, either grossly ignorant of human nature or else indulging in mere fanciful speculations. In other words, he says, if you tell people just be happy or just do the right thing because it's the right thing, you haven't tapped into their emotions. That the emotive call of my heart is I want significance, I want joy, I want happiness. And he says it's found in knowing the eternal purposes of Christ. And that's what Jesus says in this passage. So we're going to come to this passage and look at stepping stones to joy uh, in, in this particular statement. The first is this. The first stepping stone to joy is <clears throat> the Father is glorified in our fruit bearing. Verse 8 of John 15. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, thus showing yourselves to be my disciples. The fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit that, and that your fruit should abide or last. So, the, the, see, the reason that is a stepping stone to joy is because if I'm called into fellowship with God and I'm told to produce fruit, then it means that I am significant. That I, I have a, a significance because I'm made in the image of God and I've been called into fellowship with Him and He's appointed me to bear much fruit. Therefore, I have significance. There's a short story written by a guy named Ernest Hemingway, an incredibly gifted man. Uh, Hemingway, born into a very privileged family in the greater Chicago area lived an incredibly adventurous um, life. But at the age of 34, he wrote a short story, it's an incredible short story entitled, A Clean, Well-Lighted Place. And the short story is this, there, there was a, an old man who would go to a bar every night, and the two guys who ran the bar was a younger man and an older man. And the old man who came to the bar every night was well-dressed, and he would sit there and he would drink brandy until he was drunk. Then he would stagger home. And one night, the younger of the two barkeepers wanted to close the bar, and so he was trying to push the man out and show something of disgust with him. And, and you find out in the short story that the old man is deaf, that his wife has died, so he lives with a niece. And the week before that, he tried to commit suicide, but his niece had found him right before he died and cut the rope, and he, he survived. And so... They have this story, and the old man leaves, and the young man goes to his 
way, but the older barkeeper goes to the, a bar down the street and has some drinks. And as he's thinking about life and thinking about the fact that he has no hope in life, he comes up with a very famous nada prayer. Nada in Spanish means nothing. And so he prays the Lord's Prayer like this. Our nada, who art in nada, hallowed be thy nada. Thy nada come, thy will be done on earth as it is in nada. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our nada as we forgive nada who nada against us. And what he's saying, there's nothing. There's no purpose in life. There's no meaning in life. And he comes up with this statement. It was all a nothing. Man is merely a nothing. He's, he's a nada. And he says this. What did he fear? It was not a fear ordered or excuse me, a fear or dread, it was a nothing that he knew too well. It was all a nothing, and man was a nothing. And he came up with this statement, nada y pues nada y nada y nada pues nada. Nothing from nothing to nothing to nothing. And that really was a personal worldview of Ernest Hemingway. In 1961, as a 62-year-old, he committed suicide. His daddy committed suicide. A sibling committed suicide. An incredible, beautiful young woman who's a runway model, his granddaughter committed suicide. It was a family filled with bleak despair. And so if, if that's the case, then there's, there's no significance. Conversely, one of my favorite writers in the present context is a guy named Oz Guinness, who's a British evangelical, and um, he is the heir to the Guinness Stout brewery family from Great Britain, and his mom and dad were missionaries in England. His dad was a physician, and they, excuse me, in China, and they were there during the World War II, and his brother starved to death because there was no food, but Oz Guinness survived, and the whole family is just, the Guinness family is filled with missionaries and attorneys and physicians who honor Christ. But Oz Guinness tells a very touching story that his great-great-great-grandmother in Scotland was married to a man who was killed in a bar fight over gambling, and she was left with two small boys, had no money, and then so she, she went to the bank of a river in Scotland. She's about to throw herself into the river and commit suicide. And she happened to look up. And there on the, the hill above the town was, was, was a farmer plowing a beautiful row. He plowed several beautiful rows, and he was whistling. And she looked at him and said, no, there's a beautiful order to the way he's plowing, and, and there's a beauty to the sky, and this guy has a sense of happiness. Maybe there is something to live for. And she stepped back from the riverbank and went to church, and two weeks later, she, she was converted to Christ. She was saved. And she went on a pilgrimage of faith in Christ. And out of that family, Osgin, it says, have come decade after decade, after legacy after legacy, after generation after generation of men and women who know Christ. Because, listen, she was able to connect the dots. There's beauty and there's order, therefore there's not nada. There's beauty and there's order, and the world is made in a glorious fashion. I'm able to connect the dots. And Colossians says, Jesus made all things, and he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. She connected the dots. Do you? Do I? Do I see orderliness and beauty because God is a God of order and beauty? Do I see significance because God has made me in his image and called me to the, himself in the name and power of the shed blood of Christ on the cross? You have significance. The second stepping stone to a life of, of joy is the focus of stewardship. The focus of stewardship. And, you know, you read this passage. And don't miss this verse. 
Listen to verse 9. As the Father has loved me, even so love I you. Abide in my love. Wow! As the Father, my Father has loved me, even so love I you. The, the love of Christ is the theme and the song and the hope of my life, should be. God loves me in the person of Christ with an eternal embrace of love. Therefore, I have joy as I preach the gospel to myself, and I abide or I remember or I build upon the love of God in Christ. As my Father has loved me, even so love I you. Therefore, abide in my love. Wow! Preach the gospel. Glory in the gospel. Know the gospel. See, I believe that, that as you grow into adulthood, either you're, to one degree or another, either you're swallowed up with self and self-consuming things, or you're swallowed up with something that's greater and more magnificent than yourselves, i.e. the gospel. So, so you're on this road either to be swallowed up with self and trivial pursuits or whatever. And they may be, and some of them are okay, but some of them are not so okay. Or, 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 or we're, we're, we're on the road to one degree or another of living for a purpose that's grand and glorious called the gospel. So we just went on this trip. And uh, on the return flight, we came back through Paris. And our flight left at 5.30 in the morning. And if you're flying internationally, you have to be at the airport at two hours before the flight. Uh, which would be 3.30, or if you're flying my wife, you're there three hours before the flight just in case something happens. And so uh, every, everybody who flew and had this flight had, had to get there at, uh, get up at 2.30 or 2 o'clock in the morning. So you're tired. And, and you get on the flight and you fly into Paris. And I remember flying to Paris and I said, oh, look, there's snow. Isn't that cool? It was not cool. Um, uh, Paris is like us. They don't get much snow. In fact, the headlines of the Paris newspaper later that day was, the Eiffel Tower is closed. And they never close the Eiffel Tower because they don't have ice and snow, but they could. They, 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 so there I am, flying into Paris. We hit, hit the runway, Air France, and a uh, guy comes on the loudspeaker and thankfully says it in English and French. He said, uh, there's ice and snow everywhere. We're at a standstill. We're number nine in line to get to a gate. It's going to be at least an hour. Well, you're sitting there going, oh my gosh, I'm up at 2.30, 2 o'clock. And so I'm sitting there and, and I'm looking around and people, a couple people started losing it. I mean, one guy just was up and down and, and they say, please be seated in the airplanes. Man, he wouldn't be seated. And so a young flight attendant very, came to him and tried to talk to him and he kind of blew her off. And then they brought in Nurse Ratchet. And they brought in... They brought in this gal, and she read him the riot act. I don't speak French, but she said to him, basically, you better sit down. I'm going to throw your sorry self off this plane. He said he became a meek man very quickly. There was a lady in front of me that I think was having a panic attack. As soon as we were able to, she, was, she ran down the aisle knocking people over. It was kind of wild. And you're sitting there, and you're tired, and you haven't slept. And so you're exiting the airplane. You're going, to, you know, the connecting runway ramp that joins the airplane to the, to the airport. And... So we're, it's narrow, and you're walking down there, and there's a, all of a sudden, everybody stops. And you're going, why, why are they stopping? And there's a, a young woman there taking selfies. Taking selfies. She was a millennial. Problem number one, okay? <laughs> just got to be honest. Just got to be honest. So she's standing there taking selfies. 
And so we had to stop and walk around her because I guess she hasn't seen snow or something. And I'm just going, you're, you're, you're kidding me. And I said to my wife, how's that for a total lack of self-awareness? And yet, as I reflected on that, how often have I taken selfies around people who are hurting? How often have I taken a selfie when I should have been attuned to the things of God? So, so either I'm in the self arena with growing or diminishing degree, or I've got a greater purpose. That's to honor the Lord. So, so we had the opportunity of being at this regional seminary, and there were men and women from um, Libya, Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco, Egypt, and Mauritania. And in the world index of persecution, the number one place for persecution in the world is North Korea. Number two of Af- is Afghanistan and then Iraq and Iran. But, but number seven is Libya. Number 30, which surprised me, is Tunisia. Number 40 is Algeria. Egypt is number 17. So these people understand suffering. And we're in a, in a prayer group. Every day we had a prayer group with different people. And there's an interpreter, always an interpreter. And, but when people are expressing their heart's desire in prayer, you kind of get the sense of what they're saying. And there was a, a pastor there from a country that I, I, I he spoke a little bit of English, so we'd had some, uh, a meal together and tried to talk a little bit. And, and he was a little bit younger than me, but had grown children. And I found out that, that in his church that has 300 people in it, he had um, people come in and had burned the pews and they spray painted the walls and destroyed all the material. And the building had been condemned, so they had to found another place to meet. And uh, so we're in this prayer meeting and people are sharing the prayer request, and all of a sudden, a person from this country received a text. And the text said that a, a, a fellow worker had been arrested for his faith, and he had been taken to prison, and probably would be in prison for two years. Because he's just talking about Christ. And as he said that, I looked up, and I, our eyes met. This pastor, our eyes met. And he did this. Like that. And it was a holy moment for me. He wasn't doing that, saying, no big deal. He was saying that, like, yeah, yeah, we, we expect that. I was going, my gosh, we expect that. That's part of the fabric of serving Jesus in this country. We expect that. And I thought it was a holy moment because he, here's, here's a man who has a, a bigger, more glorious thing to give himself to than so many of the things that consume me. It's all about self-forgetfulness and the gospel. It's all about telling people about Christ so they can go to heaven. It's, it's all about seeing the church prosper. It's, it's, and, and, and these things are to be expected. And so I just thought about the, the glory of praying the Lord's Prayer. And in that little clause it says, Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And how glorious it is to live in the gospel grace arena where people understand forgiveness because they understand the cross. And it's fun to be married to people like that and to have kids that are like that and to have friends who are like that. But Because every place else you go, even in this culture, it's all about merit. It's all about deserving it. You deserve forgiveness. You deserve this. The gospel is all about the merit of the cross. And I thought about Luke 7 where Jesus goes to a home of a well-known Pharisee. Pharisees were uptight people who kept rules. And as Jesus is at this home, a, a, a woman, we think she's a prostitute, it's called a sinful woman, came in and she started bathing his feet 
with her tears, which only a menial servant would ever do, the lowest servant, and wiping his feet with her hair. A statement of ultimate humiliation. And, and, and the Pharisee kind of did this and said, oh my gosh, he thought, if, if this teacher knew the prostitute, the immoral, adulterating whore that's touching his feet, he would be repulsed. But Jesus knew. He says, let me tell you a story. There's a money lender that had two people that owed him money. One guy owed him 500 denarii. Another owed him 50 denarii. So the money lender decided to forgive everybody their debt. Which man loved the money lender more? It's a pretty easy question. And the Pharisee said, well, obviously the guy that was forgiven the debt of 500 denarii. He says, you're right. And he says, is he who's been forgiven little loves little, but he who's been forgiven much loves much. Now, we, we egregiously misunderstand that teaching because we sometimes step back and say, well, obviously, if you've been a drug runner or um, a, a, a sexual offender or a murderer and you come to Christ, you have much more joy than just a normal guy from suburbia. That's not the issue. The issue is that the more you see your heart, the more you realize you're the prostitute. I'm the prostitute. My heart is dark. I need grace. So the more you see the gospel and yourself, the more you understand the joy of forgiveness. And it builds stewardship of life and joyful sobriety. Number three, he says this, that the activity of a steward is obedience. Verse 10 says, if you keep my commands, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So step number three is that if, if I'm to have a stepping stone to joy, I, I must be a person of obedience. Now listen, the obedience is not the obedience. If I don't do this, I'm going to get, I'm going to get punished. The obedience is this, that, that God's word frees me to be the person I've been called to be. Obedience, George McDonald said, is the opener of the eyes. Oh, obedience gets me into the, the joy of the Father's glorious embrace. Obedience. <clears throat> now, I, I went to the Citadel, and we have a regulation. It used to be a lot bigger when I was there. It's called the Blue Book. I, I got a copy here. There's all the regulations about being a cadet. Let me just read a couple to you. This will help you understand why some Citadel guys are the way they are. The proper position for a Citadel freshman is called bracing. The proper brace position is simply a modified position of attention. Fourth class freshman cadets assume this position in the barracks while online in formation, or when an officer upper class cadet enters their room, they're to jump up and stand at attention. It is a stationary position only and is not practiced while marching. <laughs> Next paragraph, to assume the proper brace position, bring the heels together sharply on line with the toes pointing out equally, forming a 45 degree angle, rest the weight on the body, evenly on the heels and the balls of the feet, keep the legs straight without locking the knees, hold the body erect with the hips level and the chest lifted and arched and the soldiers uh, shoulders square. When you go to the mess hall, proceed rapidly without running. 
getting there ahead of the upper class cadets after falling out of formation at the mess hall steps, moving quickly and quietly to your seat. When you sit down, fourth class cadets will eat a square meal, identified as eyes ahead and squaring their arm and their hand movements while eating. Bring the utensil to the mouth while not moving the head. The head and the back remain erect as identified in paragraph 3-6-5-3. It's a great way to go to college. <laughs> but you know, if you're a cadet, you, 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 do, you do this stuff because you want to go out on the weekends. And if you don't do this stuff, you end up sitting in your room on the weekends or walking up and down a quadrangle with a rifle. I've, I've done both, and it's not fun. So, so you, you do this stuff, you do this because you don't want to get punished. That's not what, that, these are not the same guys. We hold to this because we want to taste joy. Uh, we hold to this because, because we want the freedom that's found in Christ. We hold to this because it gives us a glimpse into the glory of heaven. And it fills us, we, we hold to this to quote Jesus these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. I read a book recently. It's a pretty good book by a woman who uh, talks about her pilgrimage in life. And she's not a believer, but she has some wonderful things to say. And she told a story, and I thought, man, this is going to be good. She said, I was a, a young woman backpacking through Asia, and I had one of the most significant discussions I've ever had in my life on a train outside of New Delhi, India. <laughs> she says, on a I was on a train, and there was a Roman Catholic priest there. And as I got to know him, he was very kind and gracious. So I, I asked him, she, he said, I, I deal with negative thoughts. I deal with bad issues in my heart. How do I conquer that? He says, here's what you do. I thought, man, this is going to be good. He said, you open the front door of your heart and the back door of your heart when an envy, envious thought or a negative thought comes in, and you don't invite that envious thought to tea. And I went, that was it. And I thought, wow, that's not that good. Let me tell you what would have been a great statement to say. A great statement to say would have said, let, let me tell you how you handle these issues. First of all, it's hard because we're all sinners, but, but you, the way you handle those issues is you realize the supremacy of Christ, and you go to John chapter 8, where Jesus says, with such clarifying insight, if you're my disciples indeed, you will continue in my word and you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's a lot better than saying you don't have tea with food, whatever. I don't understand what that means. The truth will set you free. And so if we're to experience joy, we must realize that, that obedience is a stepping stone to joy. And, and, and obedience usually is that part of your life that's the most difficult to give to the Lord. So we come to him as children, and we say, Lord, take, take this. Take my moments in my days. Take my attitudes. Take my relationships. I really, I really want to walk in, in accord with your word because the truth will set you free. You'll continue the word the truth will set you free. You continue, you continue, you continue, the truth will set you free. So, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the day. We thank you for the, um, the, the, the honesty of the Bible. It's just, 
And I say, Lord, forgive me for so often being like the Pharisee who looked at the prostitute bathing the feet of Jesus with disgust, not realizing that we're all prostitutes. So, Lord, um, bathe our hearts afresh in the reality of Christ. I, I pray for people who'll be uh, in our services today who really don't know where they are in their faith journey, that, that you'd speak to them the glory of the cross and that your name would be rich in our lives. Uh, Lord, change us, teach us, motivate us. I, I pray that we would taste real substantial joy in the midst of heartache and pain, joy. In the midst of brokenness, yeah, joy. Because you're good. Thank you that we're significant um, because we're made in the image of God and we've been called into fellowship with you through the work of the cross. Thank you that we're not cosmic accidents. So, so we, we rejoice in that. We rejoice that the people we'll speak to as we leave this worship service are men and women who have eternal significance, eternal significance. So may we be swallowed up in the greatness of the gospel in Jesus' name. Amen.